The opposite of fear is bravery. Hmm. Nope. The opposite of fear is curiosity. Is the glass half empty? Is it half full? That misses the point. Elevating curiosity will help you see and understand what's in the glass. This is Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, the podcast of curiosity. In each episode, Becky Saltzman interviews unconventional thinkers and doers in her unconventional way to dissect and uncover what you can use to see things others miss, make better decisions, and apply your talents in new and profound ways. Elevate curiosity, escape the boundaries of ordinary. It was as though he had been slipped a tab of ecstasy or, you know, some sort of dopamine drug. His eyes wide, big smile. There wasn't a look of panic or or proprietary nature. I mean, he was hook, line, and sinker. Hello, curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers. Welcome to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio, Episode 7. I am your host, Becky Saltzman. In today's episode, we are going to start with a Mae West quote, just to prepare you, which says, those who are easily shocked should be shocked more often. Because today's episode, we are talking with Holly Shepard, the fledgling madam. Holly is not only the fledgling madam, which we'll explain what that is in just a minute, but she also is the co-owner of Sanctuary, Portland, Oregon's innovative and inclusive LGBTQ and alternative lifestyle nightclub and event venue. She says it's not a sex club, it's a sex positive club. Holly is a wife, a mother, friend, skier, leader, and a damn fine neighbor. She's also passionate about normalizing sex, kink, and alternative relationship configurations in the hetero-monogamous world. To this end, Holly plans events, writes stuff, counsels individuals and businesses, and promotes safe, fun, and intentional sex exploration to anyone who will listen. She has been in a relationship with her husband for 26 years, and the two have been practicing what she calls ethical non-monogamy for six years. So today we're going to take a dive into this world or this culture or this subculture and learn about, explore, curiously, explore ethical non-monogamy. We're going to learn a lot of things, some of which are the terminology to kind of understand. We're going to hear about the difference between consensual non-monogamy and kink the difference between swing and kink and poly, what a swinger lifestyle was in the kind of olden days and what it looks like today. What happens at a sex club or sex positive club? And actually we delve into the difference between a sex club and a sex positive club. And how do you navigate a traditionally monogamous relationship as it evolves or turns into a non-monogamous relationship and the difference between rules and boundaries and certain terminology like compersion and how do you describe that and does it come naturally or do you have to practice that? Do you have sex in front of each other and how do you deal with that? And is the term vanilla sex a negative? Are there downsides to non-monogamy? We delve into a lot of things all the while 
elevating curiosity. And because this is a very, very growing segment of the population and slowly kind of coming out from the shadows, I thought it would be a fun idea to highlight and elevate curiosity as we explore something that is really divisive for some people. And just as an aside, it was interesting when I was telling some people about some of the people that I have coming up on the podcast, and I mentioned Holly and Fledgling Madam and what that meant. I got as many people excited by it and curious by it as I did repulsed or cringy by it. And I thought that's kind of an interesting thing. So I think that if you are tending toward the latter, the cringy, just elevate curiosity because we talk about some things that actually can be translated to our everyday lives, like how to not take things personally and how to be direct and how to reassess traditional gender roles. And I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. I know I did and still was left with many, many questions. So this is certainly not a rated G episode, but you know, we're probably all adults, or at least I hope if you're listening to this, you're an adult. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the fledgling madam herself, Holly Shepard. Holly, thank you so much for being here at Applied Curiosity Lab Radio. I'm excited to talk to you. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Fantastic. We're going to jump right in because you and your husband have been married for 26 years. Actually, 20 years this year, but we've been together for 26 years. We met in college. Oh, yeah. college sweethearts. Mm -hmm. College sweethearts. And we did the modern route. We met in college, moved to Portland, bought a house, and then we got married. So we did all of the contractual things before we did the major contract. Okay, so mm -hmm. of 19 of those 20 years, you were in a monogamous relationship, correct. is that correct? Yes, I didn't know that there was another alternative, frankly. All right, I guess my question is, can you tell us the story of what transpired and how it unfolded as you moved or shifted from monogamy mm -hmm. to what you call ethical non-monogamy? And if you could also throw in a few definitions for good measure. Certainly. I'll do a little of the Wayback Machine. I was an at-home mom as soon as my first was born. So the division of labor in my house was very strict in a gender model. As soon as my children became a little older and my youngest started to go to kindergarten, so this was 10 years of young children, I could feel a shift in both um, my marriage and my philosophy about partnership. And it also became extremely evident to me that I found other people attractive. And that is um, not uncommon for humans. It's actually, it's a part of how we connect with people is through chemistry. You just never know who's going to be interesting. So I noticed this of myself that, um, that more and more my eye was wandering, that my marriage was changing by virtue of these gender roles that we put ourselves into that didn't exist before children. Uh, so on a kind of a, a wine-fueled porch night with my husband, I was asking about strip clubs and why men like to go to strip clubs. It's never been my thing. Turns out I'm extremely heterosexual after all of this exploration. So I asked him why, and he said, well, it's the fantasy of the thing. It's the promise of it, even if it doesn't come to fruition, the promise of another woman is exciting. He said, what about you? Haven't you ever wanted to fuck other men? And um, this was the longest, heaviest pause in my brain of my life. So it's 19 years monogamous. 
I'm thinking, okay, what do I have to lose? Can I tell him the bald-faced truth? How is this going to look moving forward? Screw it. Yeah, yeah. I think about it all the time. And his response to me is, I'd like to see that. Wait, so no pause. No pause. Just, just I'd, I'd like, like to, to see, see that. that. And in your brain, you're thinking, what flashed through your brain? Was it A, oh my God, relief? Was it, oh my God, titillation? What was that first kind of shot of brain chemistry? Um, it was shock because he was still sitting next to me and he wasn't, um, you know, his confidence didn't didn't falter with that stinging reality. You would think it would be a stinging reality, but instead he uh, he rebutted with curiosity <laughs> and real desire. So that enhanced our sex life. Just that revelation enhanced our sex life. The promise therein, every dinner was different. Every time we would go out, ooh, look at that guy. You interested in him? What about her? Just having these conversations, like like I would with a girlfriend, or a gay guy friend with my spouse, it made everything more interesting in him. All right, so what next? After this conversation, you're for a few months, a few weeks, you're mm -hmm. having these kinds of just conversations but no action on it. What was the next step? It took us about three months to make a next step. We met in the early 90s and we never dated. And suddenly we're in, the dating environment is now firmly online. It's pre-Tinder, but it's definitely Craigslist. There are a lot of non-monogamy sites, typically swinging sites. Swinging is, it's on the spectrum of non-monogamy along with polyamory, kink, queer, bi, gay, you name it. There's a huge spectrum on the non-monogamy. Can I ask a clarifying question? Yeah. So as you're telling your story, we can clearly work with these definitions. So I'm curious about the difference between swing and kink and poly and mm -hmm. some of these other terms of differentiation. And yeah. you call yourself an ethical, consensual, non-monogamist. Correct. Can you unpack those definitions before jumping back into the story? I can um, not. My only expertise is really, I call myself swervy, swinger poly pervy. It's a combo pack um, because I find that labels, while they help humans a lot, they're so limiting. So typically, polyamory refers to people who are in loving relationships with multiple people. This often manifests as a communal living situation. It can manifest as um, people raising children together. It can be two women living together and one of the women has another female partner. Gender, relationship configuration, and polyamory is all very fluid. I would say gender is fluid in, well, humanity at this point. Okay, so kink, it refers to more of the BDSM lifestyle. Kink comes with many, many rules. When I say BDSM, I'm talking about power play. So dominatrix, dominators, subs, use of pain often, but also with strict, strict rules. So kink is what we might have referred to back in the day as sadomasochism. Yep, yeah, okay. yeah. And then swinger is what you see in your mind of like Studio 54, Ron Jeremy's balls on the floor, you know, key parties, that sort of thing. 
Modern swinging does not look like that. Modern swinging is uh, bends a little more toward polyamory in my world in that we make relationships with a lot of people. It certainly doesn't mean that we fuck all of those people, but those relationships do have a sexual overtone, a flirtatious overtone. Swingers do not have the laundry list of rules that kinksters do because there typically isn't a power play involved. The sub-dom relationship is extremely conformative to rules made by the sub and the dom. Swinging is exactly the other way. And my husband likes to say that swingers come from a big funnel of people and then their relationships start to narrow. Kinksters come from a narrow, narrow relationship model that starts to get bigger as they start to play more in the open. Interesting. There are many, many ways to explore ethical non-monogamy, and there are many ways that people do it where only one person is practicing and the other is in a monogamous relationship. Wouldn't that have to be full of tons of rules? I am... Um, I prefer boundaries to rules. Okay. What's the difference? Um, Rules are a top-down approach, and I find them to be very limiting. So if something is wrong, you create a rule. Boundaries are very personal. It's less of an umbrella. For instance, my husband and I have three rules, safe, fun, consensual. So this is how we explore our sex lives together and apart. And those are hardline rules. Boundaries are more flexible. They're more situational. They also are devised to lift people up rather than talk down to them. My personal boundaries are much different than Lorenzo's, but it takes a lot of trust for each of us to to have uh, to love each other and understand each other's boundaries, even though they're not our own. Let me get a clarification of consensual. So mm-hmm. are you talking about consensual for you, or do you have some kind of veto power, consensual? You're not talking about consensual between the two of you, but consensual for you and an outside partner. Correct. Okay. Yeah. That's it. the most important thing, that a person whom Lorenzo is having interactions with, there is full consent between those two. Interesting. I lost my thread, though, but you touched on something there. Um, about boundaries, rules, or the consensual aspect? The consensual aspect. Well, veto power may have been what you Veto. Yeah. Exactly. Veto power is a very dangerous place. I strongly believe in um, new relationship energy, which is something they talk about a lot in the poly community. It's NRE, they call it. And that's when you meet a new person. It could happen to anybody. I mean, you could meet someone in a shop. Oh my God, this person is fabulous. And you have to get through. It's like buying a new shirt. You want to wear that shirt 10 days straight. And then it becomes a part of your collection. And then it starts to get some holes here and there. It's still a lovely shirt. You're still going to wear it often, but you're just not as obsessed about it. That happens with every relationship. And I believe that veto power comes... It's a tricky thing because oftentimes the relationship, that new relationship energy will go away and the veto power just feels like control, shitty, shitty control, when the relationship would have ended on its own anyway. With the person learning all sorts of things, valuable, valuable lessons. Anytime Lorenzo has exercised veto control over me, I've just wanted that thing more. Oh, interesting. With deleterious effect. Have you been... And I want to get back into the story, Mm -hmm. but I also want to understand if you have ever been desirous of implementing veto power over him? Or you're so aware of the ramifications that you wouldn't? Lorenzo and I come from much different places. And that is something that we're almost constantly working on. He comes from a an Eastern European and patriarchal view on marriage. I mean, he was raised by two women. His father died early. So his mother and his grandmother 
had a strong, heavy hand in the household. He still moves to the street side of the sidewalk when we're walking in the street. He will open doors. He is, it's hardwired and it's very difficult. I was raised by a hippie single mom who had lots of enticing love affairs. And um, I don't tend to have a jealous bone in my body. I also, um, compersion is a thing. It's a new term, but compersion, I love to see the people that I love enjoy themselves. What became evident immediately when I first saw Lorenzo kissing another woman and having intimate relations with another woman, I was like, oh, I could watch that all day. More difficult for Lorenzo. Okay, so I was looking up in preparation for our chat, mm-hmm. I was looking up some of these terms so I could be knowledgeable. And, and it's difficult because right now with identity politics, mm-hmm. We come together in our tribes by the use of words that could also create exclusionary. So I'd like to always unpack some of the definitions so people don't listen and think, this is not for me, I'm out of it. I I don't like the exclusionary. So compersion, I think, was coined by the Carista commune in San Francisco, Mm -hmm. and who also, I think, came up with polyfidelity. Yeah. But compersion, if you could describe that, and you kind of indicated that it comes naturally to you. Do you, so you never feel resentment, is that, is never feel resentment? And then how does someone deal with creating compersion? How do you, how do you, and, and that would be, an, I think, an effective thing to know how to do in many aspects of our lives. Absolutely. So if you can describe that a little bit. Um, it, it will eradicate the fear of missing out. If you can truly be happy for someone enjoying themselves whom you love. I think it's hardwired in me personally. Um, I also walk this planet with great confidence that I, as a unique individual, create very unique relationships with other people. So if someone then goes and creates another relationship, I understand that ours is extremely unique. I etch upon people and create relationships that cannot be duplicated by that person with another person. That's simple, correct? Right. And it's true for everybody. Everybody walking on the planet creates a unique relationship when they meet another person that cannot be replicated. That there gives me the confidence to look at my husband and say, he's going to go out and have a good time tonight, even if I have a niggling something that doesn't feel right. I am confident in my relationship being unique and etched upon him in a way that, that another person will not etch. Well, so there's also a level of trust between Lorenzo and me. So when I had the, those initial opportunities to see him with another person, because of that trust, I already had a scaffold to enjoy. If we didn't have that trust, I've seen a lot of couples come into what is loosely called the lifestyle, come in without that trust. So it's very difficult to see someone that you love but don't trust enjoying themselves. You question your relationship constantly. I've never questioned the uniqueness or the depth of Lorenzo's in my relationship, nor anybody else for that matter. All right. And again, moving away from the story, but since you brought that up, I'm curious about something in particular. How is it different to come at this polyamorous lifestyle from a point of a marriage versus just a point of living with a bunch of other people? Mm -hmm. And is he your, you know, I see this restaurant, I hear a funny joke. Is he still your go-to person? He is my go-to person. I compartmentalize quite a bit. We do things differently than other people, and other people do differently than than we do. It's a real place of privilege to come into ethical non-monogamy as a coupled person because you have your sounding board, because you have your mission, 
and because you have someone to watch your kids, run an errand, do all of the logistical stuff to help you calendar this stuff. It is very difficult to calendar this stuff. That, that's the number one complaint in the polyamorous. And do you ethical. use Google Docs? Yes, we do. <laughs> <laughs> we use Google Calendar. Oh, my God. Yes, absolutely. I want to get back to my story quickly because it is pertinent. So we were not from the online dating culture, but that's how we got in to it. And we were so, uh, we were so disappointed. Where did you go? What was the first app you downloaded? Uh, well, we went to Craigslist okay. first okay. because this was all so seedy and seeming. I mean, it has never, swinging polyamory, non-monogamy had never been offered to me in, in a way that looked attractive. It was never, um, you know, I remember sitting down with an Oprah show and they had swingers on and the combined weight of those people and the way that they looked in their age nothing resonated. It was fascinating, but I still had, I was still stuck in the seventies and I didn't want to live in the Midwest with those guys. I didn't want to fuck those guys. So nothing, it, none of it made sense. Craigslist suddenly like, oh my gosh, there are all these people. And there wasn't Tinder. And now there are apps and things that are made just for polyamorous people and swinging people. Anyway, so we had a couple of disastrous dates. You kind of make it sound like in the olden days, we had to walk in the snow five miles to, you know. We did. We literally did that because there was big snowstorms. And so, yeah, we would walk and fuck people. (laughs) (laughs) All right, go ahead. So uh, after a couple of abject failures, and when I say abject failures, I think everyone can relate whether you um, have dated once or dated dozens of times online. When you give up your entire CV to a person and they give to you and you're in this incredible, I mean, it's just a, I mean, it's like an online romance. And then you're like, finally, we're going to get together and have a drink and the person just doesn't smell right, or they are exact, they have portrayed themselves so terribly online, we decided at the end of the day, we just need to go out and meet people. So we went to our lo- local swingers club, and that's where- What'd you Google? Portland Swingers Club? Yep, okay. and, and it had just recently opened at the time, it was called Sesso. Oh, that um, was Ron Jeremy's mm-hmm, club. Uh-huh, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, Ron Jeremy is just a figurehead, um, not an attractive figurehead. <laughs> The management there was great. The club, a beautiful club with private areas and open areas. Um, My first time, the ethos is such a matriarchy, despite the fact that uh, now I find the traditional swinging world to be a little misogynistic. I much prefer the swervy world. Um, Okay, we're going to need to know that distinction. Before mm -hmm. you do, I want to create an image just really quickly. So you put on some outfit that you thought would be appropriate at a swingers club. Mm -hmm. The and smallest dress I've ever purchased up to this date. Yep, absolutely. And, and Lorenzo wore what? They have a dress code. So he wore a collared shirt and a pair of slacks. And we went in for the tour, which they do free. I think they still do on Thursdays. And we wanted to go in when people weren't there and just see what's up. So we did that. And then we went to a bar down the street and we just unloaded and unpacked with each other. A few days later, we went to one of the Saturday parties. It wasn't super well attended, but people were extremely friendly. And I... This misconception exists often between the vanilla world and um, the sexual adventurers of this world. You think of a sex club and you think of zero boundaries. People just walking around fucking each other or like, oh, accidentally, I have a cock in my, what, what? (laughs) It it couldn't be further from the truth, Um, particularly in swingers clubs where there are strict rules around um, how many men they let in. 
strict rules about um, attire for men. And really the only rule for women at this club was you must wear shoes. Oh, Mm -hmm. interesting. Okay. So women own their bodies. They own the club. They own um, their boundaries. It was really a refreshing place. And I felt super sexy there. What made you feel sexy? That I could dance as sexy as I wanted with my husband. That I could take my top off. I'm a total exhibitionist. Did um, you know that about yourself before? No, I had no idea. I mean, I've always been into theater, comedic improvisation. I mean, I am an exhibitionist. I didn't know that it. I was without clothes as well. So what did it do for you when you took off your clothes? What were you hoping for people to notice? What What, what was the goal and what was the, was it a dopamine surge? Was it a... It's so interesting. It didn't go beyond my husband at the time. Oh, um, you were just doing it for your husband. Yep, absolutely. And you wanted to see his reaction to your taking off your shirt in public. I wanted to take my shirt off in public. And I was absolutely, I was just stymied and excited by his reaction. And what was his reaction? It was as though he had been slipped a tab of ecstasy or, you know, some sort of dopamine drug. His eyes wide, big smile. There wasn't a look of panic or or proprietary nature. I mean, he was hook, line, and sinker. And so that first time, is that as far as you went? Yes, that's as far as I went. And but then, what did Lorenzo get to do? Lorenzo got to watch. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then slowly, slowly, we started to share. We started out with a lot of rules, and then those dissolved into boundaries. And the three rules I talked about, our initial rules were always in the same room, always together. Everybody had to agree, you know, lots and lots of things to make us feel safe about exploring this with each other and so that we felt like our relationship wasn't being bombarded by other people. We then met one couple that it's very difficult. I'm a heterosexual woman. My husband's a heterosexual man. It's very, very difficult to find two other people. It's just a a geometric impossibility at a certain time where you find two people whom you both resonate with, both sexually and socially, and then you continue that relationship, the four of you. Very, very tricky. Do you find it hard just to find a heterosexual couple? Yeah, absolutely. That's a rarity. Well, bisexuality, um, sexuality is very situational. And we're learning this particularly with men right now. When I started out in the swinging world six years ago, it was bisexual women everywhere. And Frankly, I felt preyed upon by women, and they're very aggressive in the swinging scene. What does aggression look like? It, it's uh, it's a lot of touching. There is a ask before you touch rule that definitely applies for men in the swinging world, but women seem to have a sense of entitlement. You'll see it at strip clubs as well. I have a lot of exotic dancer friends who um, say, "Yeah, women are women are the worst at strip clubs." There is a sense of entitlement because they have boobs; they get to touch your boobs too. So this was my first shock about the the traditional swinger world. And it was a disappointment as well. The, and there was a disappointment that I wasn't being hit on by more hot men. They would stand behind their wives and wait. I just wanted by guys. So I started that conversation a few years ago. So how did you how did you suss them out? When you're there, how do you know if the man is standing behind the woman, how do you let them know do you just say, listen, I'm not interested in you, I'm interested in you? You're just clear or are there little signals or are there little inside? Unfortunately, signals don't work for this shit. Mm. You got to be frank, open, honest, friendly. Is there an art to that? Oh my gosh, yes. When we're in sex situations, we're so accustomed to being closed off. We don't want to be victimized. You see people come in to the club who have kind of an I smell shit look on their face. Just very reserved 
surveying the scene, we would always be attracted to people who are smiling, laughing, talking with other people, and not assuming that everybody was there to to cross their boundaries. So we just naturally took to people who were more open. We also, our philosophy was if the worst thing that happens tonight is if we fuck each other, it's a winner. Oh, perfect. So yeah. you can't lose, really. Right. You right. can't lose. All right. So then you're in the club. You're going for the second time. You're ready to be more adventurous. And you're just going up to people and saying, listen, we are a heterosexual couple. We're attracted to you. What are some tidbits of advice that you can give to people for communicating in a more frank way that may be even applicable outside of this world? Ask questions. Be curious. People love to talk about themselves. So instead of, here's something I hate. What do you do for a living when uttered at a sex club? Really? (laughs) That does not get me wet. Unless what you do for a living gets you wet too. (laughs) So we would avoid those questions. And I always do. So my questions are, how did you guys find non-monogamy? What are you interested in? How do you play? Sex is called play in this world because it is. It's a playground. So those kinds of questions, surreal revelations, very easy to ask. And if you could run under the assumption that conversation is always welcome and that it's not about sex, people open up very easily. What is the one thing that people ask you more than anything else? And how do you answer it? And I don't mean just people from the community. What do you call it? From the community? Is it a community? Yeah, yeah. From the community. From the community. I mean, in general, when people know what you do. How do I meet people? How do you? That's the question. How do I meet people? And it makes me so sad because people are trying to meet and connect on social media constantly. And the disappointment is so raw And the best way to meet people is live and in person. Meet them and then go up to them and talk. Don't make assumptions. We make every assumption in the world. You see a Facebook profile, you assume that person, you see them live, and you've already put a framework together. Ditch the framework, forget social media, meet, ask questions. Is Um, it just a matter of being interested before trying to prove that that you're interesting? Yes. And interact. And interaction comes in many forms. You know, not everybody interacts in the same way. Find something that's mutually interactable. I've interacted with people who are writing in their journals at clubs because they're interacting with something. They're not just sitting there with a drink in their hand waiting. Okay. That's it. It's it, the question makes me sad because we spend so much time misunderstanding each other. And, and it really is it's just a matter of getting out and saying hello. All right. So you mentioned something, you mentioned a term vanilla sex. Mm-hmm. And when I think of someone being described as vanilla, I have to admit that there is some judgment in, in, in that. Why is vanilla sex called vanilla sex? Is it is there judge and is there judgment in that? Are there assumptions built into that that should be extracted? I hate that term because of the judgment, but it it exists to differentiate the rest of the world from those people who are open to having myriad sexual experiences that are are diametrically opposed to what we've been told from the pulpit from our health educators and uh and really from monogamy in the last 20 or excuse me 200 years so vanilla is a is a it's a catch-all term i don't believe that there is any vanilla sex personally 
everybody has a thing. I call monogamy a kink now, so few are actually doing it. Well, do you think that monogamous <laughs> people aren't sexy? You talk about dealing with sexy people. You specialize in sexy people. Are monogamous people not sexy? I think um, monogamous people are perfectly sexy. It's closed-minded people that aren't. And I do believe that monogamy is a kink, and I think precious few are, if you look at the timeline of your life, most everybody has fucked at least two people. So not monogamous, are you? Well, hopefully, at least. Yeah, I mean, again, please. that's a judgment. Yeah. That's a judgment. Right, a judgment. everybody. And it, it this happens all the time that these two things are equated, but eating styles and sex styles. We cater to many, many, many different palates in the food world. Shoot, we have a whole gluten-free aisle. We have a whole industry. Billion What's the gluten-free of the sex world? Oh, gosh. I don't think there's a fair comparison. Okay. The gluten-free of the sex world right now might be toys for women, like the clitoral stimulation toys and things like that. There's a big... So it would be a product that is um, exploiting a certain intricacy of the sex world right now. Non-monogamy is certainly having its thing. That could be the gluten-free. What an interesting question. All right, but, it, but is mono- non-monogamy really having a thing or is it just because it's salient to you that it seems that way? It is definitely having a thing. So um, just in the last year, uh, New York Magazine, Esquire, Rolling Stone, uh, New York Times, countless, countless mainstream sources are exploring non-monogamy as a viable relationship solution. It's a viable solution to cheating. All right, so what is the difference between having a a relationship where you can have your, you know, one special, what do they call that? Your, you know, your one special. A paramour or a metamor. Or mm-hmm. one, your kind of, your hall pass, I guess mm-hmm. is what they call it. What's the difference between having an occasional hall pass and actually having an open marriage? Oh, there's, there's no difference in my mind. Everybody has their own rules. There are some people who have a don't ask, don't tell. I won't fuck those people personally. So it's my choice, actually. Why would you not? Why would you not fuck a don't ask, don't tell person? Well, first of all, they have to tell me that they're a don't ask, don't tell. So <laughs> then that gives me the opportunity to say no, um, because that's not how I create my relationships. So I like to have some parity in that way. I understand though that many, many people don't tell the truth when they're looking to get in my pants. <laughs> Are you good at discerning or you just wouldn't know? I'm happy that I get to make the mistakes that I do. All right. Mm -hmm. Okay, speaking of mistakes, boundary setting has got to be a big topic in the poly swing kink world. Do you remember the first time that you and your husband, you and Lorenzo, had to enforce or deal with boundaries? Saying no is difficult for everybody. And saying no in a sexual environment is extremely difficult because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings. You don't don't want them to think that you're saying no because of the wrong reasons. When the fact of the matter is, it really has nothing to do with them. Don't take anything personally. One of the four agreements, don't take anything personally. And- uh, Don't take anything personally? Don't take anything personally. Are you sure that's not a platitude? Nope. Okay. I'm positive. All right. Don't take anything personally. Because okay. very often, it really doesn't have anything to do with it. Someone might think that I smell, but it's how I smell to them. I might smell fine to someone else. So really, there's no room to take things personally. So Lorenzo and I, together, this was back in the more rules stage. We we're creating our own boundaries. Gosh, we just had a hard time saying no and being frank and forthright and polite. And then... Saying no to other people? Yes. Oh. And then also making it so that it wasn't just super, super awkward 
after that because you ran into the same people all the time. It's a small but growing community. And at the time, our community was rather small because we were isolated to this club. And so we would see people whom we had maybe an awkward sex experience with, and then we'd see them again, and we were just tired of it. So we met this couple, and then we met another couple, and this was at the club one evening, and we're all you know, enjoying each other, but it's clear that we like this one couple better for sex, and the other couple, we don't. Well, somehow, all of us ended up in the same room together, same private room, and we looked at the other couple, and Lorenzo and I looked at the couple that none of us wanted, and we said, you know what? This isn't going to work for us. It's nothing about you all, but we would like to be together. We wish you a great night. And we got up and we went to another room down the way. Just the two of you. Four of us. Oh, you mean the four of you abandoned? Abandoned. Hapless couple. With with great care, good boundaries. There was a great exchange. They were kind. If they were deeply disappointed, we didn't see it. They, you know, but we felt like it was a good Let me ask a clarifying mm-hmm. question. How did you communicate to the other two? hey, we're all in this club together. We're going to, I mean. That had happened going up the stairs into okay. this room and we we're all feeling a little trapped and then teased our way out of it with forthright talk, polite, and that ended on a good note, hoping that we would be able to be downstairs at the bar later, see those guys say, hey, have a great night. So here we go, walking down the hall, go into another room, high-fiving each other. Woohoo! Lorenzo forgot his shirt in the other room. So he had to go back. It's like the walk of shame, the worst kind of walk of shame. I'm cringing. Had right to go. Now. It was so brutal. And we're all the three of us are waiting for him to come back. So he walked in, said his apologies again, grabbed his shirt. But it was still, it was successful boundary setting that that allowed us to say no. And then we all of us, all six of us, had a great laugh about the shirt loss down in the bar later. Big lesson. Have you ever experienced that kind of rejection? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, and, and were you able to not take it personally? Or is it still a constant effort? Um, it took me a while to not take it personally. But having rejected a lot of people for reasons that have very little to do with them. Yep. I absolutely understand now. Does that translate to other areas of your life? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this has, ethical non-monogamy has informed my life what I was talking about with creating relationships, that uniqueness that I bring to the table, everybody brings to the table if they acknowledge it, that has definitely translated to my relationships with my children. I've become more open-minded, more, I do not have judgment of other people and how they live their lives now. I just can't. Sex is such a raw thing. Everybody needs it differently. We're hardwired for sex, food, and sleep. And we fuck with it all the time. I don't understand why. There's so much shame around it. Um, And shame was a great thing a few hundred years ago. It helped people not get scurvy. It helped people not get gonorrhea. It helped with all these things. Now we have science. It's no longer effective. Is there any positive benefit, and I don't mean societally, that you, if you had to, I held a gun to your head and I said, you have to come up with one positive aspect for the individual, not for society, because mm-hmm. that's much more hard to unpack, but for monogamy, what would be the one trade-off that you think is worth, I mean, that is really a trade-off. It can't be a non-benefit cloaked as a benefit, but really a trade-off. Oh, I mean, legal rights for stuff and property. 
absolutely makes it a lot easier in our civic environment to be monogamous. But that's a but that's a more of a societal thing. I'm mm-hmm. talking about as on the individual level, something that you had to give up. Is there not one thing that you had to give up that you I'm not suggesting that it's not worth it, but that you wish you could have as well. It's interesting. I do live in a bubble called Portland, Oregon. Um, The ramifications of me coming out as a woman who is practicing non-monogamy have been zero. If I have lost friends or if I have lost any admiration, I haven't heard of it. Are most of your friends in this community now, do you find? Or is it just, does it happen that way or not really? No, it doesn't happen that way. I have a couple of friends that have come from my mom's group, um, and they are non-monogamous now. I've been able to inform a lot of people about non-monogamy in all realms of my life. We still get together for our Friday Shabbat with the same people that we moved here 20 years ago with. All of those people know what I'm up to. Everybody's been to my club. Talk about your club for a second. You are a co-owner of a club called Sanctuary. Yes. And you describe Sanctuary as a sex club that is an an inclusive LGBTQ and alternative lifestyle nightclub and event. We are not a sex club. Ah. We are a sex possible club. A sex club implies that you're coming there to have sex. Our club is a place where you come to dance, to hang out, to learn, to create community, If you have sex, we have all of the sanitary and comfort products for that to happen. But it is not a sex-driven club. It is for people who have sex drive, for sure. So is that different? There are sex clubs? Absolutely. Totally different. Is it a good business? It's a good business. It's food and beverage. So it's completely that same roller coaster ride of the nightclub business. Our model is much different than other sex clubs. We charge everybody the same price at the door. Usually there is, uh, there's gender bias at any nightclub at the door. So a regular swingers club would charge couples one price. They would charge women a much lower price, single women, and then they would vilify single men with the price that they pay. An example is $100 at the door for single men, $15 at the door for single women. One five versus 100 or five zero versus 100? One One five. five. Wow. So that turns women into a commodity and men into assholes, entitled assholes. If you pay $100 at a sex club door, what do you think you're going to get? Sex, entitled assholes. And if you charge women, you know, five to $15 at the door, they think they're entitled to protection because they're wanted you know it's just it's ridiculous plus we don't know what gender people are anymore you can walk in and you have an x on your driver's license you're presenting as a woman but you're calling yourself a man i honor that so we charge everybody the same price at the door regardless of gender or relationship configuration this is a, a novelty in a sex possible environment there's been traditionally men are vilified so their sexual needs are um corralled and put in a corner, and their numbers are very, very limited. We're asking everybody to level up, increase your standards of behavior, instead of having the rules that drive us down. We have guiding principles in our club instead of a lot of rules. Our what guiding, are some of the guiding principles? Um, kindness and respect in in the kindness arena. Um, speak with non judgment. Listen with non judgment. Be kind. 
to your fellow humans, create community, introduce people. We ask that everybody serves as a host or a hostess on the floor. What does that mean? That means that the more people know each other and the more people you're introduced to, then you have an accountability to each other and the place becomes a safer place. So instead of having police on the floor, and we do, we have active hosts that that are employed by us, we make everybody the police. And that levels up instead of talking down to. Is it, does it become like a community or is it more like a club where you don't see the regulars? I mean, are there the norm? Are, are, do you have the norm from Cheers at Sanctuary? For sure. Yeah. yeah. But it's also, it's ever-changing and ever-growing. We're still in our first year. It's new people all the time. When what we're, surprised you most about the business? Gosh, oh, there's so many, so many surprises. I'm, I'm one of the only female nightclub owners in, in Portland. There is another female nightclub owner, and she owns the Swinger Club in town. And we're good friends and always have been. That's an anomaly. So working within a man's world in a food and beverage, which is very specific to sex, puts me in a funny place. I'm called little lady sometimes. Oh, little lady. Mm-hmm. How much do you love that? I call them little man. That's a, that's a fair Yeah, response. I think so. I, I've been amazed at the full spectrum, how awful people can be on themselves, how, uh, how sex has tainted people's perception of themselves, how their wants aren't worthy, how their needs, because they haven't been met, are unworthy. On the other end of the spectrum, I have seen the most glorious displays of non-judgment, love, acceptance, particularly within right now, the trans community and the bi-male community. Seeing these disenfranchised people have a, a place to feel comfortable and be accepted, even if it's a glimmer, has been beautiful. Hmm. I wonder how, much, how those lessons could be extracted into the non- sex world. I think that there are some interesting takeaways just thinking about that that are not unique to not not unique to sex, but as a question unique to sex. What have you learned about what makes great sex and do you think it's more universal than people want to admit? Yes. <laughs> Knowing when to dismount. Often, especially as I can only speak to a woman's uh, sex perspective and then of course a, a heterosexual woman's sex perspective. Knowing when to dismount means knowing when to leave. It is up to you. And so in a sex situation, if you're having a great time, it doesn't matter if you're with one person or five people or yourself, if you're having a good time, stay. If you're not, listen to yourself, dismount, leave. It is never a bad thing to say, excuse me, I'd like to take a moment for anything, anywhere. And I teach this to people all the time is to take a pause whether you're asking a question, whether you're assessing an environment, whether you're in a, you know, you've had your orgasms and now you're done, take a pause. Do you want to stay or do you want to go? So dismount. So you've learned that that is an important aspect. Yes. And what is a trick to a successful dismount? Just communication or some kind of tell? What is the... Kindness, humor. Always kindness and humor. Being humble and being fallible is a really big part of my management style in this. Along with the club, three years ago, I started a group which has grown to be quite large. So I'm also a community organizer and I write. I found that the best way to, excuse this term, manipulate people is through kindness and showing them a kinder way. 
It's also a fabulous dismount. Perfect. Now your job as the fledgling madam, mm-hmm. and I think it's interesting that you spell it M-A-D-A-M-E, which is a sign of kind of a marital status, then rather than M-A-D-A-M, which is kind of the madam like the brothel, which I thought was an interesting choice. But what is your one favorite thing you do in your role as the fledgling madam? Hook people up introduce them to like-minded people or someone that that's I, the fledgling yenta totally i am that yenta i adore to create community and and help people understand each other that is my my absolute passion that makes me excited i'm an extrovert so it also it, it leeches a lot of energy away from me i'm i'm creating my boundaries are all set in sex now I need to start creating my boundaries around um, society and not giving myself away so much. So I'm doing that by introducing people. But that's extremely gratifying for me. And it also calls to that compersion that we were talking about. Mm-hmm. I love to see people have a good time. I'm also, I'm at the center of this organizational ethos. I'm at the center of a lot of people. So I turn into an object a lot. So introducing other people around takes the focus off of me. What do you mean by you turn into an object a lot? Oh, gosh. Like a caricature? People want to have sex with me a lot. Oh, so more than you would be interested in. You wish that it was a little toned down a little Absolutely. Well, and I'm also, I put myself out there as a person who is available to have sex. So of course, you know, they'll ask. Those boundaries can be very uncomfortable, I'm sure, because... How are people aware of exactly what you like and don't like if they haven't studied and your background, they just know that you're available, that can cause... Available, attractive, very open, easy to talk to, all of that makes it seem like I want to have sex with you, when in fact, I'd much rather just introduce you to someone who will like to have sex with you back. I am not that person. Okay, you are becoming the role of the yenta. Mm-hmm. This might be, you know, mm-hmm. this might be it. The fledgling Madam Yenta. I could talk to you all day, and I would like to, before I get to something that I call quick, curious questions Mm -hmm. or QCQs, because I want to make sure we have time for that. I want to also see if people, as people are going to have a lot of questions, that I can rope you in for a round two. Absolutely. I'm getting you on on record. The quick, curious questions are just a way to get to know you. And in a lot of these cases, people do know you because you're so open. And when you're talking about sex, we feel like we know people better than we might really, in fact, know people. But this is also so that people can kind of take this into some actionable things. And all of this and a lot of these references will be in the show notes at Applied Curiosity Lab forward slash blog. Here is the first one. First QCQ. What was the best under $100 purchase that you've made in the last six months? Ooh, under 100 bucks. I love a fresh pair of Converse out of the box. Black chucks out of the box with a pristine white toe. Yep. Okay. That gets me every time. <laughs> that's all, uh, black straight up. Let me just see what you're wearing. Oh, yep. You've got there them on. They are. Okay, perfect. And Windex cleans up the toes beautifully. Oh, Windex. Yeah, yeah. Hot oh, tip. I, I, that is a good mm-hmm. tip. I love those actionable bits that we promise. All right. And what is one piece of advice that you would give to your 20-year-old self? And you might have to kind of unpack what you were where you weren't at 20, but what is one piece of advice? Who you think you are is often who you are. You know, I I hearken back to my early life um, thinking of me. It's practicing ethical non-monogamy now. I always wanted the boys. 
I always wanted to have sex with all of my great guy friends. I gravitated toward the boys. And I was a sexual adventurer, but I also I respect and desire the friendship of women. And I saw how sluts were treated by women. By I'll the way, I'm reappropriating the word slut. It is our very own. And uh, Slut meaning women who have sex with a lot of people? Exactly. Okay. Yes. There isn't a word for men in that. We just allow that men have sex with a lot of people. Oh, men. I, oh, I, I thought men could be sluts too, no? No, it has. It, I mean, it's been, it's derogatory for women. Oh. It was, now it has been reappropriated. So men are appropriating it as well. I'm all about reappropriation mm-hmm. of, of terminology. Totally. Yeah. Cunt in the kitchen, yeah. Yes, exactly. <laughs> oh, you reveal the secret. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, yeah, th- uh, be true to your sexual desires and be frank. Be frank. Mm-hmm. That's good advice. If you could place a billboard anywhere, and I'm appropriating this from several other people who ask this question that I always find fascinating, and I think this would be an interesting one for you. If you could place a billboard anywhere, where would it be and what would it say? It would be next to the Shane Company billboards. And it would say, you don't have to get married. <laughs> but it doesn't hoit. No, it doesn't hurt. I, I have some pretty strong opinions on marriage right now. I I don't believe that it should be protected under uh, some sort of tax code. I think that every individual should pay their own taxes. Um, I, I strongly, like I said, my club, we do not... Uh, we don't have a gender, nor do we have a relationship configuration bias. I think that the door to the United States should be the same. Marriage is a choice, and a lot of people may make that choice. That's very libertarian of you. It is, yeah. We're in Oregon, after all. Um, it's just fair. All right, so that's a whole... Now you've left me with this... You kind of opened this Pandora's box mm-hmm. of curiosity and left me at the end of the interview. So I'm glad that I roped you in for a round two. Before we depart, how can people reach you? www.fledglingmadam.com. You can come to Sanctuary, which is at 33 Northwest 9th Avenue. We're just a block east of Powell's Books. Second Portland. floor. Mm-hmm. PDXSanctuary.com. And I run a, for female-identified people, I run a group called the Dangerous Women's Collective. That's the second Wednesday of every month. It's a great place for people who are curious about non-monogamy and identify female to kind of get the ropes on it and talk with like-minded women who have more experience and oftentimes less experience. There was a women in wine group that I modeled this off of. And when Lorenzo and I were first starting out in non-monogamy, there's so many questions and you feel so alone. Um, and you feel like an object, and um, but at the same time, you want to be that object. It's very confusing. Despite my heterosexuality, gathering with women was the place where I felt the most understood and, and got my best information. So I, I strongly, anybody who's curious about non-monogamy, start with the DWC or something like it. We have amazing- Dangerous Women, and that is, what's the website for that? Um, it's still, it's at pdxsanctuary.com. Oh, it is at pdx. We have incredible resources here in Portland. This is Sextown USA. What and- about when you're not coming from Sextown? What advice, since this is not a necessarily mm-hmm. a local podcast, mm-hmm. what, I mean, what do people do when they're in some remote place that doesn't have that kind of accessibility? What do you recommend for them? Um, lifestyle vacations are marvelous and find one that suits you. Come to Portland and explore our clubs. BC has great clubs too. Pretty much any town will. But prepare yourselves by reading 
good books about this. The Ethical Slut is the Bible on ethical non-monogamy. Oh, that's good. That will put that in the show notes. The Ethical Anything else? Slut is fantastic. More Than Two is excellent. I strongly recommend Mating in Captivity by Esther Perel. Oh, okay. Mating in Cap- Captivity is an excellent book. And then uh, Dan Savage's Savage Love podcast is The Balls. I would agree. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you for that. I'm excited to share this with everyone. And I really appreciate your coming in and answering just a tiny, tiny fraction of my curious questions. Thank you so much, Becky. Love chatting with you. Holly Shepard is the fledgling madam. She also co-owns Sanctuary, Portland, Oregon's innovative and inclusive LGBTQ and alternative lifestyle nightclub and event venue. She can be reached at fledglingmadam.com. Thanks so much for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the episode. Before you take off, I have a quick question and a few more things to let you know about. One, you can find show notes and all resources mentioned at appliedcuriositylab.com forward slash blog. And the question, would you enjoy joining the ranks of curiosity seekers and adventurous thinkers? If so, you are invited to join the tribe of the curious. You'll receive Quick Curiosity Monday, This short weekly email is curiosity lube for your brain. It consists of ideas I'm pondering, curiosities the tribe has shared, and things that I'm enjoying that I suspect you might too. Just go to appliedcuriositylab.com to join, or you can probably just pick your favorite search engine and type in Tribe of the Curious. And let's connect online at Becky Saltzman on Twitter and on Facebook at Applied Curiosity Lab. Finally, in order to avoid missing insights from outside the boundaries of ordinary, subscribe to Applied Curiosity Lab Radio on iTunes, YouTube, Stitcher, and all the other places podcasts hide and wait to be discovered. In the meantime, elevate curiosity. Curiosity.